0: Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, Professor of Apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University.
1: And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics, also at
0: Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. We're here with a guest today that we have wanted to have on for a long time. You will recognize his name and his work. Jay Warner Wallace is a speaker all around the world. He has written a number of selling books and Perhaps the one he's most well-known for is Cold Case Christianity. He's an adjunct professor at Talbot School of Theology and the Apologetics Program. Jim, thanks for joining us.
2: I'm glad to be. But, you know, of course, the one I want to be most well-known for is the one we just wrote
0: together. <laughs> so the next generation. We'll, we'll talk about that later in the, in the podcast. But I just, yeah, of course, I appreciate you having me. You bet. Well, let me start before we get to the book. You have a, a remarkable confer- conversion story to the Christian faith, going from a staunch atheist to a Christian apologist. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey?
2: You know, that that expression seems so trite, right? Or so so kind of like standard fair, you know, staunch atheist. But but I was just not somebody who was raised around any Christians. I just didn't take it it really didn't didn't even dawn on me that it was unusual. I didn't know anybody who was a Christian growing up and I was thirty-five before I really even gave it a second look. I, I, a lot of the cops I knew. I mean, most of the cops in my agency. I was working in a backroom position. We call it. It's an undercover position. It's our crime, uh, crime impact team. So I was just watching bank robbers and uh, you know different kinds of robbers and sometimes murder suspects. We would be the surveillance team. They would put on these guys, and so I was doing that for for about two years. Uh, when my wife said, you know, our kids are are now almost ready to go to school. They're like late preschool, and should we? uh, start going to church. And I thought, but, you know, we'd been together by, by this time, probably about 18 years. And I said to her, I said, um, well, I, I was surprised if I'm honest with you. I didn't, um, didn't really see that coming. Uh, because we had never, it had never been a, an issue for us and we had never talked about it. But, but I thought like my dad, who's a very committed atheist, um, uh, if you want to go to church just to, develop some skills or to um, you know, learn a, a moral worldview. I mean, my dad is the kind of person who even now as a non-believer, is fully supportive of anyone in his family who would be anything. I mean, if you were a Buddhist or a Mormon or a Christian, he wouldn't care as long as it was teaching you uh, the values that he thought. He, he would far rather live in a world, in a country in which Christianity is the major influence than in a country in which it's not. And I was the same way. So I was willing to go as an atheist, and I would have been happy to go for the next 20 years as an atheist. But as I started to listen to what the pastor had to say that first time we were there, you know, the first time I'd ever been in an evangelical church, uh, I'd been there for like, you know, funerals, but <laughs> that was about it. And, and so I'm sitting there listening to this pastor, and he's talking about Jesus as though number one, he really lived, uh, number two, he was super smart, the smartest man who ever lived. And, and he preached a bunch of messages that became the foundation for Western culture. And I thought, is that true? Um, and I was willing to, to buy a Bible really just to read the red letter teaching of this ancient sage. And that's that's how I started. You know, I just I bought a Bible, a few Bible. I didn't want to spend a lot of money on it. And But I had a skill set in place by this time. I, I was probably the The go-to interviewer on our team, maybe the go-to interviewer on the entire department, um, because I was doing so many jail interviews um, because I was working in an undercover position, and a lot of times you would get information from people who are in custody you can use. And but that means you're constantly talking to people who are in custody, and you learn a certain skill set. And that forensic statement analysis skill set is what I applied to the gospels when I first started reading them, and um, that was ultimately what intrigued me about Jesus as a historical figure, and what started this investigation. That ultimately, um, you know, you don't get to believe in by simply determining that this is true. You just get to believe that. But ultimately, I did get to believe in and uh, became a Christian.
1: So, Jim, it, it sounds like, from from what I understand, you sort of defaulted to atheism just because you weren't exposed to a whole lot of other options growing up. Would that, would that be fair to say?
2: Well, and you know, well. It was kind of worse than that. So I hate to use that kind of angry atheist term, but if you talk to anybody who knew me at the age of 34, um, they would tell you that's what I was, because I was so uh, mean spirited toward the few people I knew who were believers. I, not, my mom is a cultural Catholic, so she's the kind of person who would, uh, you know, Christmas, Easter, but at the same time, she wanted me to to, to look at it seriously, um, even though she didn't take it seriously. And so I was the kind of person. So I ended up, you know, uh, I refused to get confirmed as a Catholic. As a young man, I told her this is not true. This is false. This is fairy tale stuff. So early on, I had enough exposure to, to Christianity through her, or to at least Catholicism through her. That I was had no interest in it, and and I had lots of folks growing up who like I had a professor, uh, a, a teacher in high school, who was Baha'i, and so he gave me and I used to love to read the wisdom teaching of Baha'u'llah. I mean, it's very, very, it's like fortune cookie kind of spirituality, right? But I mean, these are things you could certainly quote and put on, you know, put on uh, you know, cards, you know, and give to your friends. This was the stuff that was all true, ancient truths. But I didn't think that he was divine, or that there was anyone divine. There was no divine to, to be divine, you know with. So, so I just uh, rejected all of it. Um, so I did have but, but yeah, the, the vast majority of people I knew were looking back at it, you know my wife and I would always say, "Well, guess you know what? So-and-so was a Christian, and so-and-so was a Christian. I wonder why they never told us why they never shared that with us. But probably it was because um, I was antagonistic enough that it was, they weren't comfortable. So it's probably my fault that they didn't uh, share it. So anyway, so yeah, I had enough exposure that, that I just didn't think it was true. Um, and I didn't think anyone – and by the way, by the way, I had a few Christians I knew who were officers, and I, I can think of two right now that were officers um, that were either uh, – guys I respected. But um, they were not prepared to defend what they believed. And so if I took an investigative approach the the way you might when you're making a case on, okay, this is a guy you think is doing bank robberies. Now, I'm going to spend four days of my life twenty-four-seven, sitting on this guy. Why should I sit on him? Give me four reasons why you think he's our guy, and then they'll make this a comprehensive case as to why. Don't worry. This is not a waste of your time. You need to sit on this guy because he's been doing bank robberies. Here's the four reasons why I know that's true. Clearly, they were short of having a case to file against him, but they, they were sure this is the guy. Well, if you ask them, give me four reasons why you think the New Testament is true. Well, they couldn't make nearly the comprehensive case they could for the bad guy. So I just felt like, well, if you know know how to make a case, and if you can't make a case for that, why would I pay attention to it? And that's really where I landed for a long time.
0: Jim, so your wife drags you to church. You go buy a, a cheap Bible, didn't want to spend that much money to it, and start analyzing it. And I've seen this Bible. You kept it line by yeah. line going through it. Can you tell me what kind of questions were you asking of the text and what surprised you that made you at least second guess your atheist assumptions?
2: Well, right away, as I read through the gospel, I was surprised that they were going to be, I'd forgotten, you know, as a kid, you know, you, 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 know, my mom had been, in, I'd been there like for Christmas. I would go to her, to, to the church or her, well, it was Catholic mass but I didn't know really what to expect from the Bible because you, we hadn't we didn't own a Bible, and we had no exposure to Scripture. So I was rather surprised to see how comprehensive the gospel accounts were. Before we get to the letters of Paul, I was encouraged that these appear to be accounts written by people who want us to believe those things actually occurred, that they either saw them with their own eyes or that they talked to somebody who saw them with their own eyes. And that was really – that was – and for me, uh, encouraging because as I read through the four accounts, you know it's clear they don't they don't they they, they differ, and they differ sometimes in places where, where skeptics would say, "Oh, there you go, there's the problem; these don't line up." But but because I had worked so many eyewitness accounts by this time, sometimes where I've got six, seven, eight eyewitnesses to the same event, you wouldn't believe that the depth of variety we get, even if it just occurred two hours ago, and now we're interviewing witnesses. Now, the, the great thing about interviewing witnesses in real time is when someone says, well, there was a guy over there, and he said X, and the next person says, well, there were two guys over there, kind of like the, like the angel at the tomb, Right? how many angels are at the tomb? Well, when you're working in real time, if you know the other person only mentioned or mentioned two, and this guy's only mentioning one, you can flesh that out. You can say, well, okay, so how many people were standing there? Because I realize you're telling me about the one who spoke to you, but tell me how many guys were standing there, and then he'll say, well, there were two. Okay, now I've, I've got it straightened out. I, I can correct this stuff in real time. You can't, though. When you work cold cases, and that's what I have been working over the last, say, 15 years, these are just cases where I don't have access to those witnesses anymore to ask the follow-up questions. And what I end up with is a bunch of, of supplemental reports from eyewitnesses that have variations in them that the defense team I know is going to you know, love that, right? But I recognize that unless I'm able to ask the follow-up questions, these apparent variations are going to remain. I'm just gonna have to deal with it. Now, why that was helpful for me is when I read through the gospels, I said, wow, these have the same now, this is of this is intuitive. I can't I can't like give you a percentage calculation on this, you know, how many verses, how many statements can vary before you can consider it reliable, or but but if you've read through uh, eyewitness accounts repeatedly, you you come away with a, a kind of a sense of, of how much variation you should expect. And as I read through the gospels, I was like, Wow, this is what bothers me about these is that they they vary in a way that seems very authentic to eyewitness accounts. And that's what prompted me to apply forensic statement. I wasn't even going to do that, but the when you apply forensic statement analysis, now what you're looking for is deception indicators. You're looking for those things that give away inner feelings. You're looking at how much people will compress time or expand time. Because if you're doing that, there's always a reason. You're looking at optional words like adverbs and adjectives, because those things show you inner feelings about You know, you don't ever need to use an adverb or an adjective if you are using those things for for a reason, you know. And so those are the kinds of things that I was looking at in the Gospels. You know, number one, to to, to verify certain ancient claims like allegedly Peter is an influence on Mark's Gospel. Why should I trust anything Mark says? He's not an eyewitness, is he? Well, Peter is, and people early in history said that Peter was the influence of Mark's Gospel. So I just needed to know know, that. Do I have the fingerprints of Peter and Mark's gospel? So these are are some things I could test early. Also looking at and and asking the question, you know, are these variations that are are to be expected within eyewitness accounts or are these um, uh, contradictions that can't be resolved and therefore would disqualify the accounts altogether? That's the kind of stuff I was always looking for. And so I'm using forensic statement analysis to try to figure those things out and that, that's what i did for about six months in the gospels like you said it was a pretty much a line by line process what we do is we use colored markers to highlight different issues so optional words the one color uh, pronoun use another color deception indicators another color uh, compression of time another color expansion of time another so i'm doing all that just to try to get through and that's why that, that one Bible is a mess, uh, but I just, I just hung on to it because I thought it was fun to have it, uh, to remind myself of what I went through.
1: So, Jim, you went, you went through the Gospels and the teaching of Jesus with a fine-tooth comb like a forensic investigator would. Let's cut to the chase here, and what, what are the two or three things that you discovered that tar- started to turn the tide for, for you to embrace Christianity as opposed to atheism?
2: Well, okay. So I I knew that that if I tested an eyewitness for a trial, I have four criteria, and these things seem to pass. So I could test it with those four criteria. We don't expect people to trust an eyewitness just on their face. I mean we do tell uh, jurors that unless you've got a reason not to trust the the eyewitness and you can test them in these four areas, well, then you should trust them. I mean you you can say, well, I just don't like how he sounds. I don't like how he looks. I don't like his facial expressions. That's not a a reason to distrust him unless you've got something in these four categories. Was he really there? Can you prove he was there or not there? Two, is there some form of corroborative evidence that would help you confirm his statements? Three, has he changed his statement over time or has he been consistent, honest, and accurate? And four, does he possess a bias? These are the four things we use, and as I tested the Gospels, you know, they passed the test in those four criteria. I think really what what is most troubling for most skeptics, and for me too, is this idea that there are supernatural elements you know look if you took out all the miracles and all you had were the daily travels and teachings of jesus no miracles would anybody anybody seriously question the veracity of those accounts historically evidentially i don't think so i mean i think that the the thing that causes people to go yeah this can't be good this can't be true are the supernatural elements. Really, it's the bias against supernaturalism that is at the root of so much skepticism, or at least vocalized skepticism. You know, There's other issues in my life and in the life of people who don't want to believe this is true, that, that play in as well. But, but for me, if you're going to vocalize some rational um, objection, it's usually because you just don't believe in anything miraculous. I mean, it's not that Jesus was teaching at the Sea of Galilee. It's that if he does a miracle there, you're going to go, no, it can't be true. Well, I've already examined my own bias against the supernatural. That was part of this process
0: Herbert. Hey, Jim, you, you said something that surprised me when I first heard your story about you came to the conclusion that this was true before you even understood why Jesus had to die. Could you take me to the next step of actually understanding that, committing your life to Christ, and what that looked like in terms of any life change uh, for you personally? Okay, so uh, it, it, you know, um, I'm not sure this is a product of where I was, and uh, it's not as though
2: you know I went to church once, and then I kept continuing to church every week and heard the gospel message repeatedly. It was that I went to church once, and uh, I w- we would then go to church afterwards. You know, not necessarily as as often as I would probably should have, but but really that investigation for me was about looking at sources, and you didn't know what the ancient texts said. Uh, looking at the, the, the earliest uh, believers and what they wrote, looking at earliest non-believers around that period to see what they wrote, and then just doing, doing this this really comprehensive forensic statement analysis. Now, all this time, you know, I stayed in the Gospels. I stayed in those four accounts. And um, I got to a point where I told Susie, I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm convinced that these accounts pass the test at every level. But I don't understand why in, under this system – Jesus, God would have to come in the form of Jesus and die on a cross. In other words, I didn't have any way to connect the theological dots on, on what, what, what salvation was. So, so I got to that place where I always talk about belief that, belief that this account is reliable, belief that Jesus was who he said he was. And that's where I was short of the goal. And I tell people looking back at it that if you want to move from belief that to belief in, well, then stop reading the Gospels and stop reading the New Testament for what it says about Jesus and start reading it for what it says about you. But that – I couldn't do that. I mean I just was not able to do that until I first could jump this hurdle. This wall was between me and the Gospel. And once I was able to knock it down, and of course I say I was able to, but you know God does this, right? He uses these mechanisms, like the evidence from scripture, from, from scripture, uh, to knock down these barriers. He's calling you, right? And he's calling me. But I needed to get really, I think, more into the letters of Paul to connect those dots back to. Uh, for example, I, I only did so much in the Book of Acts. I did a lot more in the Gospels than in the Book of Acts. A lot of this time now, I shifted and I started looking at what the New Testament said about me and my need for a savior. And by this time, I, I already trusted the New Testament, but I had to go through that six months or so to get there. And then I realized, I got, so people always say, well, you can remember where you were when the light bulb went on? Not, not in terms of belief of that, I mean, that was a longer process, but in terms of reading through Romans, I remember we were on surveillance in the city of Mita, California. And I was working a guy, I think his residential burglar, and I was not on the eye. I was on the perimeter because we have one guy who spent two hours watching the bad guy. If he's home, for example, doing nothing, although one of our team members is buried somewhere watching the front door of this guy's house. And the rest of us are all in different cars on the perimeter. So if Casey goes mobile, we'll know which direction to go. So I, you might have two hours where, where the guy's not doing anything. He's just at home doing nothing. So you're just – everyone's just sitting there. And I was reading through Romans and then in the first Corinthians, and I realized, man, the, this dude's talking about me, you know, and, and the light bulb went on. And I realized that I had a real need that was met in the person of Jesus. So you might have belief that he, you know, Jesus claimed to be Savior and all the things he did said are true, including the resurrection. I mean, until you know you need a Savior, there's just a Savior sitting over there. And at some point I realized and that 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 he was there for me. So so I, that's when I, I can't remember where I was when that dawned
1: on me. You know, Jim, I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of this, but uh, you were a youth pastor for a number of years. I'm curious, how did your experience as a cold case detective help you be a youth pastor? And what explains your passion for younger adults, students, and for equipping the next generation?
2: Well, I know that I was pretty lame the first year that I was a youth pastor because I I kind of forgot my way, you know. And by that time, I was probably a Christian too too soon. I mean, I probably shouldn't have been a youth pastor as as young a Christian as I was, um, but I was already almost through a seminary at Golden Gate Baptist Theological, and I remember um, I was really lying. I was reading uh, authors who were youth pastor youth specialists who were far more artistic, and I have a background before I became a police officer. I have a bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architect in architecture. And I I really have loved working in the arts. I mean, I loved working in design. I'm a very visual person. So that that first year, um, based on who I was reading, who were telling me about young people, you know, and I had my own kids, but they were really too young to be in high school, Uh, but they still stayed with me anyway. My own uh, four kids were younger. And I spent that first year just working in the arts with the youth group. I mean, I was really, everything was a visual experience. It was very experiential. It was sights and sounds and textures and smells. I mean, I really controlled the environment in the room. In some ways, it was kind of goofy looking back at it. But I can tell you this, we graduated seniors that year and all, all but one were, uh, walked away from the faith in or the church at least, uh, in the first uh, probably 10 weeks of college. Of university, most of them more were gotcha. at, at Sonoma State and, and and Berkeley, and at the end of that, I thought to myself, "Whatever I'm doing, it's terrible, and it's got to stop." And so we shifted everything because I had forgotten pretty much how I had become a Christian and relied on kind of the thought at the time that I was reading and I read a lot of books at the time, um, and you know, just kind of really uh, lost my way in terms of the evidential approach that I personally took. I just figured that's just me as a cop, right? I mean, the way you get guys like me in is this way. It's not for everybody. It's just my way in. Well, it turned out as we shifted toward that model that was more of a case-making model where we just rotated between teaching theology, apologetics, and behavior. And we designed every trip, every uh, curriculum set, every uh, scope of study was in one of those three things. We saw incredible results in the lives of young people to the point where they were voluntarily willing to abandon all of the kinds of camps and activities that we used to do, you know, we did so many board all, stores, all, of, oh all the God.
1: fun, st- all the fun stuff,
2: all the fun stuff, quote unquote. Well, he realized this—this this was the fun stuff. It was missions trips to Berkeley. It was missions trips to Salt Lake City. It was missions trips to downtown to Skid Row. Uh, you know, working with uh, ministries that, that 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 you know could kind of learn about social justice from a biblical perspective. I'm, I'm just telling you, it, it was a shift that opened my eyes to the stuff I knew all along, but I didn't realize that young people would be so animated by it. And when we saw that, we said, oh, wow, this is all we're going to do from now on. And, and that's what we did until – and my kids were probably 10 and 12, my oldest. So until they were through with um, – right, we stayed with those that group until they were out of a, a high, high school. So we, we felt like. Um, We did some, you know, we had maybe five or six years there where we graduated students that we hope now are, you know, the kinds of kids who will go out and make a difference in the world.
0: Jim, one of the things that amazes me about you is how many opportunities you have to write books, to travel, to host TV shows, and yet I came with you. I came to you with the idea for the book so the next generation will know, and you agreed to write it with me. Now I know some of that is our relationship, but I also know you have a passion about the next generation. So, why spend a chunk of your life writing this book? Why are you passionate about it? And what do you think makes it unique to parents, youth pastors, and those who care about the next generation?
2: Well, you know, a lot of it is, Sean, that it, you came to me with the idea uh, because if, it, if it's somebody else, I'm not sure. And I always see you as perhaps the, the, the best kind of character that I have seen in apologists in reaching young people I I just I just wanted to be a part of that and because we have a connection to Biola and we love Biola and we want to you know we want to also help those youth pastors who end up getting their MA in apologetics and we we kind of think that more should so we, so we knew that there was a, a need for the resource but you and I both know when you do these trips and you 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 know you do a lot of what talks you know here's what is true about this issue from a biblical perspective here's what is true about that issue a lot of what 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 is true and at the end of that, you always have somebody come up and say, "Okay, I get it. I get it. I should know all this. I do know a lot of this. But here's the problem I'm having: I don't know how to teach this." So I knew there was a need for a how book, a how-to book, because there's so many. We, I mean, my all all the other books I've written are all what books, and this is a how-to book. And I just think that's a that's that's an important shift that was missing. And, and I also knew that uh, probably, you know, you probably have more uh, young audiences than anyone else in the country as an apologist. And, and so you were seeing it. Um, I've, I've seen it for years, too. And we, we both have a set of skills, both as pastors. You've been a Christian educator. We know, and, you know, both, we're both parents. I just felt like, hey, we could probably have something to say. Now, look, for those who are listening, it's not because I was great at all those things. It's because I was terrible at some of those things for seasons, and it was out of the it's out of the the train wrecks of 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 things I know I have now that we shouldn't do. That's what pushes you, I think, to write something like this. You feel like, hey, somebody needs to warn somebody about these stupid things I've done so so a lot of it is just speaking from our own mistakes in those three areas you know that that I think we can we can actually help the church now avoid those those problems,
1: you know. Jim, one of the things I really appreciate about the book is toward, toward the end, one of the chapters about Love Explorers, uh, which you talk about uh, ex- exposing students, what I would call just throwing them right in the lion's den. Uh, you know, Some of the, some of the th- places where you take students to encounter ideas that are contrary to a Christian worldview. Uh, lots of people are afraid to do that with students, particularly high school and college age students. Uh, what, would, what would you say to those who, are, who, who get nervous about exposing students to some of these, you know, really out there, outside the box ideas that are contrary to a Christian worldview.
2: Yeah, it's so true. Um, Kids are not afraid. Uh, Kids are courageous. Uh, Young people are courageous. They want, look, they're probably because they've been kind of seeing this stuff and hearing this stuff and reading this stuff for some time now and maybe haven't even expressed it to their parents. So so as parents, we feel like, hey, we're doing a good job of protecting our kids from these ideas. But if they haven't told us that they, oh yeah, you know, I brought up online yesterday, and unless it shakes them to the point where they're going to talk to us about it, we may not even know the ideas they've been exposed to. So if you're going to offer an opportunity to go address these, these issues face to face, I think young people are like, yeah, I finally want to get an answer for that. So I'm willing to go, and I'm willing to do that. And, and some of the crazy things we do, I remember the first year we ever took, we do these theology um, trips where we, we you know, a great idea is that you want to find the mecca of some other spiritual worldview. I and mean, we're close enough to Salt Lake City here in Southern California that we can get there in 12 hours. So we thought, hey, there's the mecca of Mormonism. Let's, t- let's go there. If there was something else, if there was some other mecca, we'd have gone there. But this is where it was closest to us. So we decided to go to, to Salt Lake City and And it's a great opportunity to share the Gospel with people who have a different view of the Gospel. and so this it's a great refining trip. Well, I can remember that first year, a parent came to me and said, "I am not going to uh, let my my child go with you." Um I don't think it's right for you to go to that group who are very sweet, and they 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 have a view and it, and why would you go and steal? that view from why would you go and, and try to tell them they're wrong. Of course, when you hear that, you think to yourself, okay, clearly this person does not think that our view is in any way, right. If they think that, that, that we shouldn't share, we have a cure for what's killing people spiritually. If you don't see it as a cure, then yeah, I get it. You're not going to want your kids to go on this. Um, But the the kids were not, for the rest of that training period before we went, I remember that, those two kids, uh, uh, they were really twisted by the fact that their parents wouldn't let them go. Now, the next year, Those parents, once they saw what we did and saw the transformation in the other students, well, they let their kids go. And then uh, about a year ago, I happened to see this this mom in a class at Biola. She's now getting her master's degree in apologetics. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. uh, Wow, what a transformation, right? The mom who said no now gets it. But it's because we took those trips. So, so a lot of this is yeah. Don't be afraid. Your kids are far more courageous than you are. That's that's just what young people are, right? They're courageous. They do crazy things. Um, and I think that uh, we can we can use that that uh, that's a that's a quality of young people that we can actually use to our advantage to 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 leverage it to do things that are transformational. Because those kinds of things we're asking them to do are the things you will remember the rest of your life. And if you're not courageous enough to start, it's that power of yes. I, I, I learn more as I get older, you know, the power of yes. If you don't say yes to certain things, you miss opportunities. The power of just saying yes to those kinds of trips is, is really, it's striking.
0: Jim, you and I have led probably four or five of those trips together, including one to LA that our friend Brett Kunkel set up for us to interact with Muslims. Yes. And the students always rise to the challenge and just walk away fired up. But I think the model is really one of the chapters in the book is you talk about the difference between teaching and between training. Teaching is in a classroom for a set of just skills and truths, but training is when there's a goal out in the front. You saw this in the police force. You see this with athletes. When there is something in the calendar, I have a fight in six weeks, a boxer starts training. So when you put on a calendar, we are going to Berkeley. We are going to Salt Lake City. Then kids start training and really owning the truth. So, that's just a wonderful yeah. model that you've written. You've talked about kind of frames this book. And so thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking about it. I certainly want to encourage our audience to pick up a copy of So the Next Generation Will Know. It's really a handbook. I think you nailed it when you said this isn't just kind of a, a what book, truths people need to know. But what makes it unique for parents, for pastors, for youth pastors, mentors, grandparents, anyone who cares about the next generation, here's some real practical things that you can do to help them build a worldview. So I think you're right that it, it fits kind of a unique niche. So thanks for coming on. Your love for the next generation and for partnering with us at Biola. Thanks to both of you. As you know, I feel like we're part of a larger team, so I'm just gonna have to be a small part of it. Thanks for coming on. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Jay Warner Wallace, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.